Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything. available everywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Well, the subject of today's episode might be one some listeners are surprised hasn't been covered on the show already. It was a murder so sensational during its day that period newspapers called the court case that followed the trial of the century. I'm on the phone today with New York Times best-selling author, Simon Bartz. He was, I believe, the second guest I ever had on my show. We talked about his book, For the Thrill of It, Leopold Loeb and the Murder That Shocked Jazz Age Chicago. For those of you who remember that, well, he's back and here to chat about his most recent book, The Girl on the Velvet Swing, Sex, Murder, and Madness at the Dawn of the 20th Century. Thank you for coming back on. Well, thank you for having me. It's it's always a pleasure to talk about the book and to talk about my research, and and I appreciate the chance to talk to your audience. This is one of those stories that is almost unbelievable in its telling, but it is also one that has been brought to life in, in various ways throughout the years, in movies, books, etc. Was it intimidating at all to tackle this topic? Um, that's an interesting question, and I think the answer is is no. And I think part of the answer, part of the reason for that is that um, when I approach a topic, when I consider writing about something, my research is kind of. Um, I think it's it's fair to say, and I'm not saying this in any kind of boastful way, but it's original research and. What I do, I'm I'm lucky in the sense that I teach at a college, and that gives me time. And one of the things that I do when I look at a topic 
to write about is go to the newspapers. After time, and this is a crime that occurred in 1906, and so I went to the New York newspapers and just basically looked through them and found as much as I could. And the, there are very few authors who are in that position where they have the time to be able to do that kind of research and who also have access to the microfilm reels of the old newspapers because most of these newspapers are not on the Internet. And so to get back to your question, I always think that I'm able to get a, a, a fresh look at a topic simply through doing research that people have not been able to been able to do before. And so in this case, um, in 1905, at the beginning of the 20th century, there were 14 daily newspapers in New York City, which is kind of amazing in itself. But, of course, the newspapers were the only source of the news, and so everybody relied on them. There was no such thing as television, and there was no Internet, of course. And in my research, I looked through eight newspapers, and these are obviously the New York Times, but then the the two major newspapers of the time were the New York World and the New York Journal. And then there were a whole bunch of other newspapers like the New York Herald, the New York Tribune, the, the American, the New York Sun, and so on and so forth. And these just give an enormously detailed portrait of anything that they talked about. And so I, I was confident when I take on a subject. And of course, one always takes a look at what's written, been written before. And over the years, simply because Stanford White was very prominent as New York's leading architect, in fact, the leading architect in the United States, and because the crime was so sensational and because it involved so many different elements, several people have written books about it before. But I think it's fair to say, to make the claim that mine is the first book that does this very kind of detailed research in the newspapers, the contemporary newspapers of the day. So, I mean, if someone had already done that, of course, then I probably wouldn't have taken on the topic because you don't want to replicate what has already been done. But I found in this case that nobody had done that kind of research and therefore it was worth a fresh look at this very famous murder. Well, I'm glad we waited for you to complete your book before before I took on this subject here at Most Notorious. Glad to have you here to talk about it. I'd like to start with Evelyn Nesbitt, if you don't mind. Such a compelling, sympathetic young woman, and what a life she found herself thrust into from such an early age. Who was she, and how did she come to find herself in New York City? Well, she was born in a small uh, village called Tarumtum, which is just outside Pittsburgh. and it, It's very close to Pittsburgh, so it's essentially Pittsburgh. She was from Pittsburgh, and her father worked as an attorney in Pittsburgh, um, and they lived in a middle-class, respectable neighborhood. And her mother was um, a housewife. And unfortunately for the family, the father died when Evelyn was about 12 years old. I think she was 12. And um, when that happened in those days, 100-something, 120 years ago, there was really no safety net. And what happened was that the family went from being middle-class, respectable, to impoverished, to poverty-stricken almost overnight. 
because the mother had no way of making a living and she had two children. She had Evelyn, who was the eldest, and then she had a son called Howard, who was about two years younger. And they really had a very tough time of it, as anybody would in those days. And um, and so she moved from her middle-class neighborhood to a poorer part of the city of Pittsburgh, uh, took in lodgers, did laundry, did um, um, embroidery work for other people, but still couldn't make a living of it. And the mother was got to be very depressed over the loss of her husband and her and her situation, and she moved the family to Philadelphia first. And I think when they moved to Philadelphia, the daughter was 14, and she was very pretty as a young girl, very attractive. And so artists began to contact the mother to ask if Evelyn could pose for for these painters, painters and artists. And at that time, Philadelphia was the center of the publishing industry in the United States. It, it had many famous publishing firms, and so there was a really artistic community in the city, and uh, Evelyn managed to make some something of a living, and she supported the family, even though she was only 14 years old. And um, this was the path to her family's fortune, and then a, a year or so later, the mother moved, decided that Philadelphia was as a nice place to be, but it but New York offered more money, more opportunities. So they, she then moved the family to New York City, and they settled in a boarding house. I think it was 27th or 29th Street on the west side, and um, and again, painters and uh, even sculptors and artists, uh, people who drew for the magazines, began to contact Evelyn, and her picture appeared in the newspapers and. She became well-known for her appearance, and she was around 15 or 16 at this time. And um, and then she became, she, so as an artist model, she made $5 for each sitting, which was quite a bit of money in those days. And then uh, someone saw her photograph in the newspapers and contacted her to go into the theater, and she got a position as a chorus girl in a musical comedy called Floradora and that was playing at the Casino Theater and she was the the Floradora, the production of Floradora was very well known for the six leading ladies and they were supposedly the most beautiful women in New York City and each performance was just packed out night after night after night now Evelyn Nesbitt was never one of those six women, she was always in the chorus um, but this was her beginning of her association with Stanford White. Stanford White saw her, saw her photograph in the newspaper, and got into contact with the mother, and that's really the beginning of the story. So Evelyn was supporting the entire family. Yes, that's true. So she had a younger brother who was about fourteen. The mother, I'm not sure how old the mother was, but but the mother had really no means of making a living, and so she was really the guardian of her daughter and her daughter was going on the stage and I think that I think that she made fifteen dollars a week and um and so that kept the family going. It was the lifeline, if you like, of the family. Evelyn's images were in newspapers, magazines, advertisements, right? She was acting in a in a Broadway show. Why was her family living in a boarding house? 
Oh, well, that's a that's an interesting question. The thing is, well, first of all, I mean, she was not, I wouldn't have said she was lucratively paid. I mean, she was just in the chorus line. And um, she was still getting some money from the newspapers. But I don't think we can exaggerate her wealth by any means. I mean, she wasn't like the equivalent of um, Julia Roberts or anyone like that. Um, and you've got to remember also that there were hundreds of girls like her in New York at the time. All, I mean, the thing that we don't appreciate as well is that theater in those days was the major form of entertainment. And again, you know, we have to think back to a time when there was no radio, there was no television, there was no cinema. So what did people do when they wanted a nice evening out? They went into the theater. So New York City was just full of theaters, just, and there was just something playing. I mean, there would have been 20 productions um, 30 productions playing every night, I mean, going on and on and on. And so so she's one of these chorus girls, and there are many of them. There might even have been thousands in New York City. And most of the most of the theater at the time was musical comedies. That was the rage at the time. But in any case, things began to move very, very quickly for Evelyn after they arrived in New York City because she gets into the newspapers, she gets to the magazines, her photograph starts appearing everywhere. Then she gets into the theater as a chorus girl. And almost immediately after that, Stanford White, who's the probably the most well-known architect of his day, and certainly within New York City, he was a very, very big celebrity. And he uh, contacted, he saw her photograph in one of the newspapers and contacted one of the friends. He had a woman who was also playing in Floridora. And Floridora then introduced Evelyn Nesbitt and Stanford White, and that's the beginning of their connection. I don't want to say it's the beginning of their relationship because we really don't know how close they were, but they became on a friendly kind of basis. Stanford White is very well known as the architect of many landmarks in New York that still exist. Um, Probably the one that most New Yorkers know the best is the Washington Arch, which is in Greenwich Village on the north side of Washington Square Park. It's at the bottom of Fifth Avenue. But he was responsible for the old Madison Square Garden, which was on the northeast corner of Madison Square. The firm that Stanford White worked for was called McKim, Mead and White. So Stanford White was one of the three partners. And that firm built Pennsylvania Station, which was demolished, of course, in 1963. The firm was also responsible for the campus, building the campus of Columbia University. And and their work was not just in New York City, but it was around the country. They built, for the most part, they catered to the wealthy clientele. They built um, grand houses for wealthy New Yorkers, both in New York City and on Long Island. And so that was the firm you went to if you had, if you were a millionaire and you wanted a grand building to be built. The other building, a lot of these buildings have now disappeared, which is a great tragedy. I think anyone who does, who knows anything about the the history of New York, uh, feels a sense of loss of the number of beautiful buildings that have been destroyed. But one of the most charming buildings was actually on what is called Herald Square. And that square is called Herald Square because it was the headquarters of the New York Herald newspaper, which was probably the best-selling newspaper of the day. And Stanford White designed a very idiosyncratic building 
before the Herald, and that was uh, on Herald Square. And it was just a charming building, but, but unfortunately it only lasted about 30 years and it was torn down. It was in the Italian Renaissance style. So very striking that you have a, a building in the Italian Renaissance style surrounded by all the skyscrapers which started to pop up around this time. So basically the answer to your question is that uh, Evelyn Nesbitt was not – I don't really buy the idea that Evelyn Nesbitt was kind of a superstar, that she was an it girl. I think she was one of hundreds of girls who had a kind of momentary fame because her photograph appeared in the newspapers. But it was not the kind of fame that's enduring. It, it comes and it goes and – Someone then equally attractive takes her place, and and so it goes. I mean, that's the way life is in in all all periods. Yes, that makes sense. So Stanford White, what was his personality like? How would his friends have described him? He was very very gregarious. I mean, he knew everybody. I mean, and everybody knew Stanford White. He was very charming. He was very friendly. He was he went out of his way to help people. Um, he was a little bit reckless in the sense that he would spend money kind of without thinking down the road, should I be spending all this money? And eventually he got into debt. But he was just a very, very gregarious person who just had so many friendships and so many acquaintances in New York. He joined all the clubs, the big clubs, like the Metropolitan Club, which is the club of the very wealthy New Yorkers. He joined, he was a member of the Players Club, which is the club for actors. And and Stanford White's um, ticket to the Players Club was that he actually owned, um, he had a large share in the running of Madison Square Garden, which was a theatrical, it had two theaters inside the building. And um, and he be, he was very much part of the theatrical world, even though his his career was as an architect. But I think what what you have is that here was someone who was just very friendly and sociable, and began to link up with so many different communities, upper class communities in the city of New York, and he had a really strong reputation. Um, but there's a, a darker side to his character, and I think it's unquestionable that he and his friends did things that were clearly predatory, and in that way they, they would have social dinners, their friends, male friends, and they would have young girls entertain them, and these were very young girls. They were 15 or 16 years old, and many of them were from the poorer districts of New York City. And this created kind of a scandal. It was, for the most part, it was all hushed up. The people never spoke about it. They never published about it. They never wrote about it. And the only way you know about it is through certain uh, people wrote autobiographies, one or two people, and they mentioned these events in their autobiographies. There was also a, a newspaper article that appeared in the New York World in 1895. And this was concerned a dinner forced by Stanford White and all his friends, uh, about 20 or 25 men. And they had a large dinner. Gar you, we would call it gargantuan dinner. I mean, as much wine and champagne as you could possibly drink and course after course after course. And then at midnight, the waiters brought in an enormous pie. 
and put it on the table. And the head waiter started cutting the pie and suddenly out popped a young girl, 16 years old. And all we know about her is that she, her first name was Susie. And she was wearing virtually nothing. And she pops out of this um, pie on the table. And um, the men gave her money. We don't know what else happened. But the world published an account of this and made a big scandal of it. And the reason why it became such a scandal is because the young girl, Susie, then disappeared. And nobody could find out where she went. A few months after this dinner, nobody knew where she went. And it was Stanford White and his friends were influential people, and they tried to hush it up. The district attorney never took any action. There were no inquiries. She was from a poor family. But it's kind of, it's kind of those glimpses where you see the behavior of Stanford White, and that was the dark side of his behavior, which could perhaps have landed him in prison, but we don't know. I mean, that that's, that's um, speculation. Hello all, Eric here. So you can't fully understand the moment we're living in without knowing where we've been. On every episode of NPR's Throughline, the hosts take a story from the news and go back in time to where it started to answer one important question. How did we get here? If you are interested in the stories behind today's news stories or learning how the past informs the present, you're going to love the Throughline podcast from NPR. I've listened to and enjoyed many episodes of Throughline over the years and learned about a number of historical figures that I had never heard about before. And I've gotten insights into well-known historical events. Throughline approaches these figures and events from really interesting new angles, often telling a completely different story than the one that's typically told. Here's an example, an episode I particularly enjoyed. It's called The Lord of Misrule, and it's about a man named Thomas Morton, an early New England colonist who butted heads with William Bradford, governor of the Plymouth Colony. And Morton would end up publishing a book critical of the Puritans, a book that is considered to be the first book ever banned in American history. So let Throughline take you back in time to the source of the stories filling your feed. Listen now to Throughline from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Hey all, it's Eric. So eating better is easy with Factors scrumptious ready-to-eat meals. Don't feel like prepping, cooking, or cleaning and tired of takeout? Every Factor meal is fresh, never frozen, chef-crafted, and ready to go in just two minutes. There are 35 different options to choose from each week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor is really flexible for busy schedules, too. Get as much or as little as you need each week. Pause or reschedule deliveries anytime. There are breakfast and midday bite options, too, like pancakes, smoothies, and more. And, of course, made with premium ingredients. And Factor has done the math. It's less expensive than takeout, and each meal dietitian approved to be nutritious. The other day, I downed the salsa shredded chicken thighs with sweet potatoes and Southwest veggie medley. The perfect amount of spice, I thought, and really, really delicious. So head to factormeals.com slash Notorious50 and use code Notorious50 to get 50% off. That's code Notorious50 at factormeals.com 
slash notorious50 to get 50% off. I highly recommend Factor and really hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Cheers. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. How did this relationship between Evelyn and Stanford White develop? Right. So, um, so anyway, the thing is that Stanford White got to know Evelyn Nesbitt, invited her with friends. She went the first time with a friend, and there were two men there. One was Stanford White, and they had dinner, and nothing happened. Um, and then Stanford White got to know Evelyn's mother. Evelyn's mother wanted to go back to Pittsburgh to see some friends. Stanford White gave her money for the journey. And during the mother's absence, Stanford White became like a guardian for Evelyn Nesbitt. He had won the trust of the mother, and the mother's name was Florence. So he had won the trust of Florence Nesbitt that he would look after the daughter. And while the mother was away, Stanford White invited Evelyn Nesbitt to a party. Nobody else showed up. Stanford White drugged her. And while she was unconscious, raped her, and then she woke up and she found blood on the sheets. And Stanford White was lying next to her, both uh, him and her, they were naked in, in bed. And so clearly Stanford White had raped Evelyn while she was unconscious. He was 46 and she was 16 when this happened, right? 47. He was 47 and she was 16. So things became quite complicated here. Um, She's been raped by him. It's a terrible crime. Um, It's hard to put yourself in the shoes of this impressionable girl who has just been introduced to this entirely new world. A lot of things she doesn't have any clue about. But despite this horrible act committed upon her, she does decide to stay with him. Yes, I don't think it's it's very, very unclear as to what the extent of their relationship or friendship was. I think part of what might be going on is that she, Stanford White, tried to give Evelyn the impression that this was not really such a serious matter. And I think what you have to remember is that she is 16, very, very young girl. And um, according to her account, she lost her virginity to Stanford White to, during the rape. And and I think the other thing to think about is that Stanford White represented a kind of security in terms of financial security for Evelyn and for the family. Because Stanford White then started paying for the family to move from the boarding house to a suite of rooms in a hotel in New York City and also paid for the education of Howard, who was the brother of Evelyn. And so, in a sense, Stanford White, after the rape, was providing this kind of financial security. And that went on for about a year. 
Now, were they having any kind of sexual relationship? It's impossible to know. The, the record doesn't say that, and but just that they were friends and, and Evelyn Nesbitt would go to the apartment of Stanford White, would spend time with him, but this lasted for a year or so after the rape. So the rape occurred sometime in the fall of 1901, and, Stan, and Evelyn Nesbitt and Stanford White had a close relationship for about a year after that. And part of the reason why the relationship didn't last longer than it did is that he just started losing interest in her. I think that's probably correct, yes. And I think I think there was a, a kind of um, double, double-sided double edge to Stanford White's character in the sense that he was taking advantage of these young girls, which is very selfish behavior. But at the same time, he was also very generous with anybody that he, financially generous with anybody that he knew or with anybody who needed his help. And again, that comes through in memoirs that people wrote about the period where they talked about Stanford White. So um, so he used people, he manipulated people, he exploited people, but at the same time, he was financially supporting people even beyond what you would expect. And so, for example, a couple of years later, Evelyn and her mother went on a boat trip to Europe and Stanford White gave the mother Florence five, $500, which is a substantial amount of money in 1901. And, and that was an act of generosity. He wasn't getting anything out of it. He just came and gave her the $500 before she went on this trip to Europe. So as they began to go their separate ways, she's approached by a very persistent new suitor. Uh, she meets a young man who's 31 years old. His name is Harry Thor. He is extraordinarily wealthy. The family, it's not easy to figure out how much the Thor family was worth. Their, their fortune came from owning uh, large areas, hundreds of acres, maybe even thousands of acres of land in western Pennsylvania which turned out to contain coal fields. And the family is worth anything between 12 and $40 million. And that's in 1901 dollars. So we're talking about $600 million. And Harry Thor has an annual allowance. He's 31 years old. He has an annual allowance of $80,000. His family is originally also from Pittsburgh, but Harry Thor moves to New York City he meets Evelyn Nesbitt, I think, in 1903, and they then begin a relationship, a very close relationship, a sexual relationship. And he travels with her to Europe two times, takes her around Europe, gives her a wonderful time. Then in 1905, he marries Evelyn Nesbitt. And Harry Thor himself was a rather eccentric character. He was someone who was very... Uh, had temper tantrums, fits of rage, could be charming if you wanted to be, but was known for very reckless behavior. I mean, if he went into a restaurant and sat down for dinner and he was displeased with the service and the waiter wasn't coming to, uh, coming to his table quickly enough, he would kick up a big fuss and he would just break plates and cutlery and, and the rest of it. And whenever he did damage like that, he would just pull out a thousand dollars and hand it over to the proprietor. So again, we can look at this marriage with Harry Thor 
and say why was she getting married to someone who was slight, at least slightly eccentric? And I think the answer has to be, again, financial security. That uh, she was, and we we really don't appreciate this, how perilously people lived in those days, that you could very easily drop into poverty and there would be no safety net. And, you know, sooner or later, Evelyn Nesbitt's career as a chorus girl was going to end. Sooner or later, the, the, the artists and the sculptors were going to move on to someone else. So she realized that she needed financial security and marrying into a wealthy family was going to be her ticket to that kind of security. And so they married in 1905. And I think for our purposes, what's interesting is that in 1903, when they were in Europe, she told Harry Thor about the rape. And so Harry, who then marries Evelyn, becomes obsessed with the fact that Stanford White has raped his wife, even though the rape occurred several years previously. Now, the other thing to realize about New York in those days is that the world in which the middle class and upper class lived and moved about was actually quite geographically small. So, for example, you never really went below 14th Street because that's where the slums were. The only way you would go down south of 14th Street would be if you worked on Wall Street. But otherwise, you would never go near the place. You also never went north of 42nd Street because there wasn't anything there. I mean, the theater district was in the, nine, in the 20s. And the only reason you went north of 42nd Street was to drive your carriage in Central Park. You would never go to the east side or to the west side because those were also dangerous areas. They were near the docks. So the point is that upper-class people were kind of congregated in the center of the city. They didn't really travel as we travel. I mean, you, you don't in those days, you couldn't just catch a plane and go to Europe. You had to pay a huge amount of money to go on a steam on a steamship across the, across the Atlantic. So he was always bumping, and Harry Thor and Stanford White were always bumping into each other. And this kind of obsession that Stanford White was responsible for the rape of his wife grew and grew and grew in Harry Thor's mind, and it became kind of an obsession. And um, and one evening, the three of them, by chance, happened to be at a theater performance in Madison Square Garden. Harry Thor sees Stanford White sitting at the front of the theater. He walks up to, to White, pulls out his gun, fires three bullets, and Stanford White dies immediately. And that is the, the revenge that Harry Thor exacts for the murder of his wife. So the evening of Stanford White's murder, it's, it's a slow buildup, suspense-wise. Thaw develops this kind of escalating rage over the course of the night. Correct me if I'm wrong, but, but the Thaws go out to dinner together, and Evelyn happens to see Stanford White in passing. And she mentions seeing him to her husband. And things just take off from there. Yes, so they're having a restaurant, they're they're having a meal in in a restaurant on the corner of, I think it's 24th and and 5th Avenue, and um, Harry Thor, Evelyn Nesbitt, and two male friends are having the meal, and they see Stanford White by chance. There's no connection at the restaurant, but then um, all four of them go across the Madison Square, the park, to Madison Square Garden, they're going to a performance 
on the rooftop theater at Madison Square Garden. They come, they enter the theater in the middle of the first act. They find it rather dull performance. It's the opening night. And then they start to leave. As the four of them are leaving the theater, Evelyn Nesbitt, and as they approach the elevator to go down, Evelyn Nesbitt turns to look to see where Harry is, to say something to him. She looks, and Harry is not there. She looks across the theater, and she sees Harry standing right at the front of the theater. He has left their party and walked to the front of the theater. He's standing there. He faces Stanford White. Stanford White sees Harry Thor, starts to get up out of his chair, but Harry Thor pulls out his gun and just fires point blank at a range of about three or four feet, uh, hits Stanford White, two bullets, I think, in the face and one bullet in the shoulder, and Stanford White just falls to the ground and is dead immediately. And... Uh, uh, interestingly enough, the audience thinks, part of the audience thinks that this is part of the play. And But then everybody starts to realize what's happened. And uh, chaos breaks out. Uh, everybody gets up out, out of their seats. Harry Thor starts to walk slowly down the main aisle towards the back of the theater. And then the fireman who's on duty that evening grabs him by the arm gets the gun another person grabs him by the arm and they walk him to the back of the theater there's a policeman there takes him into custody and then takes him down down to the police station which is a couple of blocks away and all the time harry thor is very calm not saying very much but just saying this man stanford white ruined my wife and, but he gives up the gun, he's taken to the police station, he spends the night in the cell, and then the next morning he's brought uh, for his arraignment on a charge of capital murder, first-degree murder, and that's the, the second half of the story then begins from that point. I guess it's nice that the police didn't have to investigate this. I mean, there was no question as to who the murderer was. He gets thrown into the tombs. So I guess the next question would be, what is the strategy for the prosecution? What's their plan? And same with the defense. Who does he hire? And is he well defended? Well, the thing, again, that we don't uh, know much about that was very common in those days, particularly in the southern states, is something called the unwritten law, which is that if someone rapes your wife, if someone assaults your wife in any way, then you have the right to take your revenge. And this would happen very frequently in the 19th century. And there were many, many legal cases, many trials where a man was accused of killing someone, but his defense was that the victim had raped his wife or had assaulted his wife. And the amazing thing for us is that juries would often buy this line. There was nothing in the law that justified this kind of revenge. I mean, it was obviously illegal. But a jury makes the decision and a jury would hear the evidence and decide, yes, the man had the right to take revenge on the person who raped his wife. And that's the defense that Harry Thor comes in with this case. And his lawyers, his first set of lawyers say to him, look, you know, the best thing for you to do is to plead insanity. You'll go to the asylum. When all the hubbub has died down, we'll get you out of the asylum and you'll be a free man. 
And if you do that, then you don't run the risk that perhaps a jury will actually find you guilty of murder. And then you're facing the, um, facing the electric chair. But Harry Thor says, no, I was justified in killing Stanford White. He is enormously popular and, and large sackfuls of mail begin arriving at the tombs from everywhere in the United States supporting his defense. He goes into court and here the question becomes, well, okay, so you're going to say to the jury that I was justified in killing Stanford White because White raped my wife. But who's going to be the witness? Who's going to give the testimony as part of that defense? And the answer is there's only one person, and it's Evelyn Nesbitt. And she's 21 years old. She's facing a district attorney who is enormously experienced, very, very clever. And everybody is thinking that Harry Thor has made a big mistake because now the witness, who's this 21-year-old with no knowledge of the law, is going to be torn to pieces by the district attorney. But Evelyn Nesbitt gets on the witness stand. She describes the rape in very vivid detail, very graphic detail. And the jury in the first trial can't decide. They're split. I think the split was about 10 to 2, which, of course, is, is enough for a mistrial. So it's, it's, uh, there's no decision. The district attorney is determined to get Harry Thor into the electric chair. And he puts Thor on trial a second time. That's always the choice of the district attorney. The district attorney can choose whether or not to keep pursuing a verdict if it's a mistrial. And, um, and so it comes to a second trial in 1908. The murder occurred in 1906. And in 1908, again, the jury takes this case. Evelyn Esbert again goes on the stand. But this time the defense changes. And the defense now is insanity. They think, you know, we're not going to, the, the impact of Evelyn's testimony is not going to have the same strength that it had the first time. So we're going to go for the safer route, route and claim that Harry Thor was insane when he fired the uh, gun. And the test of insanity in the American courts is, does the, does the perpetrator know the difference between right and wrong? Does he know that the action is wrong? And so the defense was that Harry Thor was insane at the time of the murder and the jury buys that defense and the jury decides that the verdict is not guilty by reason of insanity. And the family, the Thor family, who are very supportive of, the, of Harry and are always attending the court sessions, they want him to be sent to a private asylum where he could just have any treatment he wanted. I mean, you know, they have as much money as you could possibly imagine. So they're obviously hoping to get him into a, a private asylum where he has very good treatment and then eventually hope to get him out. But the judge doesn't buy that and the judge sends him to the state asylum, which is the Matawan State Asylum. And that's not a good place to be because that's for the criminal insane. And in those days, there were two asylums for the criminal insane. So these are people who have committed crimes, but at the same time are insane. Uh, they're both upstate. One was in Danamora, which was actually the worst of the two. But the other one was Matawan. And, um, but both of them were pretty unpleasant places. They were crammed full of people. They were far, far more inmates than there were beds 
and um, also the staff at both asylums were recruited locally. They had no, they had very low wages, and so there was a lot of violence in both places, both in Danamora, Danamora and Matuan. The prosecution in the first trial, as you've mentioned, tries to rake her through the coals, besmirch her reputation, and bring up some really ugly rumors that had no basis in fact, right? Yes. So the district attorney in the first trial tries to disprove Evelyn Nesbitt's testimony. And this is where it gets to be very paradoxical and very interesting. Because the thing is, and as a historian writing in 2019, 2018, the question is, how can we find out the truth? And the reality is that we don't know what the truth is about the rape. Because Evelyn Nesbitt has a very good, she is a young girl still, she's 21. Harry Thor's lawyers come to her and say, you have to testify. Everything depends upon your testimony. And the more graphic that testimony is and the more lurid that testimony is, the better it is for Harry Thor, because then it's going to paint a picture in the minds of the jury that, yes, Stanford White really did deserve to die his death. And therefore, Harry Thor was justified. But the enormous paradox that I realized when I was writing the book is, do we know that the rape ever actually occurred? It might have been a fabrication. And I don't want any of your listeners to read into what I'm saying that somehow Stanford White was justified or somehow Evelyn Nesbitt was responsible. I'm simply saying that Evelyn Nesbitt is this very vulnerable young woman, just 21 years old, who is being pressured by men much older than her all the time to do what the men want. And so it's perfectly possible as a possibility that in fact the lawyers for Harry Thor just put so much pressure on her to give false testimony. And what happens in the first trial is something that's very interesting. And again, this is something that only I have written about because I'm the only person who went back through all the newspaper accounts of the trial. The district attorney then asked Evelyn, okay, so you say that you were raped. When did this rape occur? And she refused to give the date. She said, I couldn't remember. It was five years ago. So then he says, okay, well, what month was this rape? And she says, I can't remember. And he says, well, was it October? Was it November? She says, no, I can't. I can't remember. And then he says, well, what was the weather like on this day? And she says, I can't remember. And so the thing, the question that pops up in anyone's mind is a rape is and losing your virginity would have been a very traumatic episode. How is it that Evelyn Nesbitt on the witness stand could not remember. And the answer that the district attorney gave outside the courtroom to the reporters was that he could establish an alibi for Stanford White, that she had made a slip. She had inadvertently given away the date by referring to another episode that happened the night before. And the district attorney, Travis Jerome, seized on this and said, look, so the rape must have occurred on this date, according to her indirect testimony, but I can provide an alibi for Stanford White. You see how complicated it gets. But that's the thing that raises a question mark over her testimony. And then the other thing that he brought up was that he produced checks 
checks where the money had been deposited, checks from Stanford Way to Evelyn Nesbitt for sums like $25.50, which is like $250 in our money, $500 in our money, that he's giving her every month for a year. And he says to Evelyn on the witness stand, how is it that you're accepting this money from a man who has raped you? If this was such a terrible thing as you testified, why would you accept this money and why would you keep up this kind of friendship with this man much older than you who had raped you? So it raises a huge number of questions about the entire episode. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? <laughs> you get the goofiest game in history, Queen's Podcast. Hi, I'm Nathan. And I'm Katie. And we're the hosts of Queen's Podcast. Join us while we spill the tea on women from history. We get into all kinds of stories here, like biographies of lesser known figures. For instance, Saida Haltura, powerful pirate queen. To the stories you might already know, like Marie Antoinette or Cleopatra, but with a fun twist. Each queen is paired with a cocktail that'll totally get you in the mood to hear fun, juicy, and dramatic stories from history. Because history is so much more than just dudes on a battlefield, and we believe that the female perspective Perspective and roles are just as deserving of their time in the spotlight. Right. So come get to know these queens. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. So, as this story was being covered, there was lots of talk that Thaw was a very violent man, and especially that story about he and Evelyn in the Austrian castle. What do you think about those claims? Is there any evidence that he was prone to regular fits of violence? Well, there's no, there's no proof because you always rely on 
accounts of people who are long, long gone, and the only evidence you really have are these different accounts. And the thing that the district attorney seized upon was that apparently during a holiday in Europe, that Evelyn Nesbitt and Harry Thor had taken before they were married, Harry Thor had this grudge against Stanford White, which allegedly was independent of any supposed rape or any alleged rape. And Harry Thor wanted to get his revenge on Stanford White because Stanford White had blackballed Harry Thor from joining all the most prestigious clubs in the city. And so Harry Thor says to Evelyn Nesbitt, you must testify that Stanford White has raped you, and that is the way that we get Stanford White into the penitentiary. Evelyn Nesbitt refuses to do that, says, no, it didn't happen, and then Harry Thor whips her, and this all took place in this castle where they were staying near the, in Austria, near the Italian border. So this, this gets to be very, very complicated. But the thing is that then Evelyn returns to New York by herself. She immediately, she bumps into Stanford White on Fifth Avenue. They start talking. Stanford White says, you must go and see my lawyer. She goes to see the lawyer and she tells the lawyer all about this whipping that she had received from Harry Thor at the castle. And then the district attorney brings this affidavit that she gave to the lawyer, brings that into court and says, look, did Harry Thor whip you when you were in the castle in Austria? And she denies it. She denies the affidavit. She denies that she had said anything to the lawyer. And so when anybody asks for proof, what you are dealing with is people who are producing totally different versions of things that might have happened. And they all have an agenda. The district attorney has an agenda because he wants to get Harry Thor into the electric chair. Evelyn Nesbitt has an agenda because she wants to save the life of her husband. Harry Thor has an agenda because he wants to avoid the electric chair. They're all, and you don't know where the truth lies. And it's impossible, of course, because everybody has long, long died it's impossible now to find where the truth is. And so you just have to uh, spin out the story and per, per present the different possibilities, which is what I've tried to do. I'm not, I'm not on anybody's side. I'm not taking the side of anybody. But what I, want, what I try to do is give the most accurate possible account that I can. And that involves explaining all the complexity of what turns out to be far more complex than one would ever imagine looking at this from the outside. So what happens to Harry Thaw after the second trial? So Harry Thaw ends up in the asylum after the second trial. He regards himself as perfectly sane, but he's sharing the asylum rooms, the dormitories with these actual murderers who he thinks are lunatics, actual rapists and arsonists who he thinks are lunatics, and he regards himself as sane. Not only does he regard himself as sane, but he thinks that he did the world a great service by getting rid of Stanford White. But what, and, and various people, friends, say to him, look, we can, we can plan your escape from the asylum. 
but he always refuses and says no because I don't want to live the life of a fugitive. I want to be able to go back to New York City and enjoy the life that I had. I don't want to be chased by the law the rest of my life. So he stays in the asylum and his lawyers petition and petition and petition endlessly on various gambits to get him out of the asylum. And most of these other legal lawsuits I left out of the book because it gets to be very repetitive and it gets to be excessively complex. So, for example, the lawyers at one point decided that they would declare Harry Thora bankrupt. Why would they do that? They would do that because there would be then a court in Pennsylvania that would declare him bankrupt and he would have to go to the court hearings to where they declared him bankrupt. It was all a kind of fabrication. But the point of that was to, to enable him to get out of New York State into Pennsylvania. And once he crossed the state line, he would never be extradited back because the state of Pennsylvania, the Thor family had great influence within that state. So that gives you, I never mentioned that in the book, but that was one of the, the tricks that they try to play. So uh, the years go past. In the meantime, the New York newspapers are always gossiping about what Evelyn Nesbitt is doing back in Manhattan. And she's going out with these various men friends. And he, Harry Thor, gets to be very embittered and jealous that he's stuck in the asylum and his wife is out on the town. So eventually in 1913, after just exhausting every possible legal avenue, he does decide that he's going to escape. And one morning, when the milk is being delivered, he slips out of the back gate. There's a limousine waiting for him. He jumps into the limousine. A limousine roars off. And the next day, they're in Canada. And, uh, and they've successfully got Harry Thor escaped. He's in Canada, and by this time, he's famous. You know, he's the guy who killed this rapist, and, and everybody, public opinion is incredibly on his side and against law enforcement. is saying, why are you persecuting this great man who killed this rapist? And uh, so in Canada, you know, he's, his lawyers then all come up from New York City to defend him against extradition out of Canada. And Canada realizes that they've now got a big problem on their hands because um, because Thor Thor has so much money and so many lawyers that he can tie up the Canadian courts forever. And Canada has just passed immigration legislation which would make Thor's extradition like a guarantee. But Thor's lawyers say we're going to fight this all the way through the courts, and so. Eventually, Canada decides that what they're going to do is they're just going to drag Harry Thor out of his bedroom early one morning and shove him into a car, drive him a few miles, dump him across the border and kick him out of the car, which is exactly what they do. And you've got to remember in those days, of course, the border between Canada and the United States was really not, it was not really a border. There were no real immigration posts there except in the major cities, near the major cities. And and so if you went anywhere along that border, you could just drive across it without any kind of um, any kind of having to show your passport or anything. So he's kicked out and he ends up in New Hampshire. I think it's Vermont, actually. And um, a passing car picks him up. He gets into New Hampshire 
and now he fights extradition from New Hampshire, and it takes about 18 months, and it goes all the way to the United States Supreme Court, but eventually he's extradited back to New York State. But here's another twist, another paradox, because New York, you've got, you can't just extradite someone for no reason. You can't just say to another state, we want you to bring this person back to our state. You have to have a good reason. And the reason has to be indictment of a crime, right? So what they had to do was they had to present an indictment against Harry Thor to New Hampshire, and that would be the basis for extradition. And the indictment that New York State presented was conspiracy to leave the asylum. But that obviously is a contradiction, because if Harry Thor is in the asylum, he must be insane, and how can he conspire with other people to leave the asylum? So in any case, he's brought back to New York, he's extradited from New Hampshire, and he has to be brought up on this charge, this indictment. And so he goes to trial, and the jury not only declares him not guilty of conspiracy, but also declares that he's now sane. And there's literally thousands of people waiting outside the courthouse on Chambers Street in Lower Manhattan. And he appears at the top of the steps and he waves to the crowd and the crowd waves back and, and he drives off and he's free in 1915. But the thing that struck me about this was this his enormous popularity. And so, for example, when when he's being brought back from New Hampshire, they stop overnight in Boston. They take the train down to Boston and they stop. They plan to stay with Harry Thor. The New York authorities have Harry Thor and they, they stay at a hotel. And when they arrive at North Station, there's 2,000 people waiting at the station for Harry Thor. And they're all trying, they're, they're like shouting, let him go, let him go. And there's a, there's a group of people who actually attack the police and try to free Harry Thor. And so this is, it was quite astonishing. People would turn out in the hundreds and sometimes the thousands to cheer on this guy who had killed Stanford White. And, um, but in any case, in 1915, he gets his, gets his freedom at last. What was Evelyn Nesbitt doing during this time? Did their relationship stay strong or, or not? Their marriage broke down shortly after he ended up in the asylum. And uh, she eventually got divorced from him. I think it was around 1915. She married a second time. She separated from her second husband as well. And she then um, went and started doing silent movies. She starred in about eight, seven or eight silent movies, was making a lot of money, and but developed a drug habit. She was addicted to cocaine and also was taking heroin. And she was addicted for about three years. Luckily, she got off that drug habit. She moved to Manhattan. She was actually, um, so she was in Hollywood, but then she moved back to Manhattan and she opened up a tea room on West 52nd Street. That didn't work out. And then she became a hostess, um, both in Manhattan and in Atlantic City. She worked in cabarets as a singer. And in those days, Atlantic City was the, the place to go on, on vacation. And um, so she, throughout the 1920s, she was making a living. She had had a son, 
and that son was not Harry. Was not Harry Thor was not the father. The father was a newspaper reporter. Um, but she then, uh, her son, as an adult, became a test pilot, and which was actually rather fortunate because the son then supported his mother. And eventually, sometime in the 1950s, she moved out to California to be with her son's family. And she lived out her life. I think she died, um, I don't have the date with me, but I think she died in 1960s. And uh, a movie was made called The Girl in the Red Velvet Swing, and it starred Joan Collins. And... Evelyn Nesbitt was hired as a consultant for that movie, and that was 1957. So, And that's her moniker. She's known as the girl on the velvet swing. Yes, in fact, well, it's this image, I think, um, because she there was a velvet swing in Stanford White's apartment, and she played on the velvet swing with Stanford White. So that image, although it was very kind of peripheral to the whole story, that image is a very striking image, and that's been... That's been, uh, uh, you see pictures of that everywhere. So, As you said earlier, there were probably hundreds of girls like her, all modeling in a similar fashion as she was. But her legacy has lasted, obviously because of the scandal, but she's still so easily recognizable 120 or so years later. Anyone can Google her name and see dozens and dozens of images of her. And, and part of it is because she's so attractive. That's the first thing. I mean, she was a very beautiful uh, woman. A second, though, I think it was her fame connection with this murder and the fact that she was on the witness stand and she did become a sensation in that sense. But if that murder had never happened, if she had never met Harry Thor, I don't think she would be known. I think that because there were many beautiful women in New York, um, of course, and they were all getting their photograph taken. But the reason people remember her is because of the murder by her husband. And that kind of catapulted her to international fame. And she regretted that in later life because she felt that it was kind of a burden. And um, and and also she became embittered with Harry Thor because she felt that she had saved Harry Thor from the electric chair, which is true. She did. Her testimony was really crucial to saving his life. But she felt that she never got any gratitude at all from the family. And um, and in his will, Harry Thor died, I think, in 1947. And when he died, he was worth over a million dollars in 1947 money. And he only left her $10,000. And she was not making much money at that time. In fact, that was probably the lowest point of her show business career. And... And she was embittered by that, and she she claimed that her son was, uh, the father was Harry Thor, but that could not have been the case. That would have been impossible. But the reason she claimed that her son, Russell, was Thor's child was because she wanted a part of the fortune, and but she just didn't have the resources to fight the the Thor family lawyers. When you started researching this book for the first time, did you have any preconceived ideas as to what this book would be? And as you continued on in your process, did you find your, your sympathies for any of the, the people involved in this drama change? Um, it's a very, very interesting question that you ask, because of 
course, this a book like this takes such a long time to write that you kind of forget what you were thinking when you first started out about it. I think the the main thing I feel now is that I had no idea that this would be such a complex story with so many twists and turns. I also had no idea about Thor's career after the murder, the fact that this legal odyssey that he underwent and how prominent it was and how much reporting was done. And the newspaper was simply obsessed with it. I mean, not just with the murder, but with what happened afterwards. The other thing I think that I came away from, and I came away with my previous book, I had the same feeling, was that I had never really appreciated the cleverness, the knowledge, the erudition of the attorneys on both sides, that you don't really know this until you look at the arguments they present in court and how they're thinking and feeling. And with the previous book, which was about the Leopold and Loeb case, I had the trial, the transcripts of the legal history, legal hearing, so you could actually see how the lawyers were working through all this and their ingenuity. And it's the same way with the Thor trials, that both sides, both the district attorney and the defense attorney, are extremely clever, extremely adroit and quick-thinking, and they're, they're professionals. And that's something that I hadn't really appreciated before I, before I did this book and before I did the previous book. Um, in terms of my sympathy, my sympathy is with Evelyn Nesbitt, right, unquestionably, because here she was at 16, a uh, very poor, by that time she was very poor background, she had no resources, and she is being pushed around, not just by Stanford White, who is so influential and so powerful, who is so much older than her, but then in later times she's being manipulated and used by Harry Thor, by Thor's lawyers. She really is the victim in this whole story, and I think that what I tried to do when I wrote the book was to change that narrative, you know, that so many people have said that for some reason Evelyn Nesbitt was the seducer, that she was a, a minx, right, who somehow provoked these two men, Thor and White, into this terrible situation of the murder. And that's just a ludicrous narrative. It's just by almost by self-definition, how can a 16-year-old manipulate these two men who are so much older and so much worldly wise than she is? It just didn't, so my sympathy were with Evelyn Nesbitt, and I did, I did try and portray my sympathy in the book with her, but in a very kind of objective way, and I hope that that came across. Yes, it definitely did. One last question: you, You've already talked about the vast number of newspapers you went through as as part of your research, but was there any piece of evidence, any bit of information that you uncovered that especially struck you? Anything that was significant enough that had it been revealed or looked at more closely, might have changed the course of the trial or of public opinion all of these decades later? Uh, it's difficult to say. I, I, I mean, there was an avalanche of newspaper coverage. You know, it was, it, it was so extraordinary. And I didn't, I wasn't able to locate the trial transcripts, but the newspapers actually reproduced verbatim the trial testimony. So it's in all the newspapers. And, and one of the things about these newspapers is that you never, if you just take one newspaper, if there's one newspaper, you don't know if that account is, is a truthful and accurate account of what happened. And so 
one newspaper might sensationalize everything and, and make it much more dramatic than it actually was. But the check on that is that when different newspapers who have no connection with each other all produce the same, pretty much the same account and all have the same degree of of um, drama, then that means it must be truthful and must be accurate. So I was going, I went through a total of eight newspapers and they would all corroborate each other. And so that gives you a very good idea that the events portrayed in the newspapers are very accurate. But was there one person or one journalist or one writer who really changed my account? I don't think so. It was just this this enormous avalanche of coverage and getting through all that reading, that was quite a task, but there wasn't anything that really stood out for me. And I think the other thing you have to remember is that these journalists who are writing about this drama as it unfolds have no idea what's going to happen. I mean, we know what happened at the end, but these journalists are writing it day by day. They have no idea if Harry Thor is going to the electric chair or not. They have no idea what Evelyn Nesbitt's t- testimony is going to be like. And so so they're living the story as it unfolds day by day. Well, this has been great. The book is available wherever books are sold. What if people want more information about you or this story? What do you recommend? Um, I have a web page on John, at John Jay College. I, I need to get my own website up, but that's something that I haven't had time to do, but I should get around to doing that. Have you picked out a subject for your next book? Um, it's, I'm not quite sure yet, but I think it's going to be something about New York City and around the same kind of period. And I think part of the reason for that is that the newspaper coverage is so amazing in that period. And that really all comes to an end in 1929. I mean, you've got to think about 14 newspapers all devoting you know, pages and pages to all these various sensational crimes. But in 1929, that all ends because of the Great Depression. And that's when newspapers begin to retrench. They begin to fold into each other. They amalgamate in order to save themselves. And the newspapers, not only individual newspapers, begin to disappear. So the New York American disappears. The New York Tribune and the New York Herald all disappear. But also the ones, the newspapers that remain, their ability to cover these trials diminishes because they can't devote so many resources to covering so much stuff that goes on in New York. So newspapers after 1929 are really totally different from newspapers before 1929 because the the newspapers after 1929 have have just one-tenth of the coverage that they had uh, in the 19-teens. Well, wonderful. Thanks so much for joining me a, a second time. I appreciate being on your podcast. I think it's fabulous. I, I'm, I'm like of different generations. So I don't really listen to podcasts myself, but I appreciate very much that you are doing this and that you've taken the time to interview me now the second time. I very much appreciate it. Again, I've been speaking to author Simon Bartz, and he's been talking about his book, The Girl on the Velvet Swing. Sex, Murder, and Madness at the Dawn of the 20th Century. Well, this has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.